Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast. Today, we are excited to have with us Dr. Steve Sullivan, who is a professor of anatomy and physiology at Bucks County Community College in Pennsylvania. He is also the author of McGraw-Hill's A&P Digital Suite, which we're going to be talking about, and the host of the podcast, Anatomy and Physiology, Bit by Bit. So, Steve, welcome. We are excited to have you with us today. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. And Steve is also one of my neighbors, and we have talked about um, some of the things that he does uh, working for McGraw-Hill. Tim and I both happen to have also worked for McGraw-Hill, so that's kind of an interesting little twist there. And my first question is, because we have been talking to so many educators about how COVID has impacted their work, but most of the people we've talked to are in the K-12 environment, and you are in a higher ed community college environment. So I'm just curious how COVID and teaching remote, how that has impacted what you've been doing in the past year. Well, it's been... um Probably not as much of a challenge for me as it's been for other instructors. I really feel for other instructors, but I had already been teaching online courses. So my course um, already had a website and tutor videos and digital quizzes and exams and homework assignments. So it was actually pretty easy to get my traditional students shifted over because even my traditional quote-unquote face-to-face courses we were very web enhanced. So they were already using lab simulations and things like that. So all I really had to do was shift to a Zoom model rather than a face-to-face model. But that also had challenges because um, I take this quote from a friend of mine. It's not my original, but um, the Steve Sullivan show is much better in person, I guess, is is kind of like how she described it. And it's it's basically... Because I teach mostly pre-nursing students, uh, students trying to get into nursing school, we have a lot of clinical discussions. And on Zoom, I feel the students just have a lot less of a sense of being involved in the discussion. They don't know when to speak up. It's not as obvious when someone else isn't already speaking, you know, like when you get in Zoom and everyone talks over each other because they don't see each other necessarily and know whose face is about to make a word kind of thing like that doesn't that's really not there anymore so so that part of it I I don't really like so much I'm curious so in the you know the k-12 environment a lot of the schools can't force the students to you know have their cameras on or anything like that is that different in community college is it a choice or I don't you don't I don't force my students to turn their cameras on right so there's there's a lot of good reasons to see their faces. There's also a lot of good reasons to not require someone to have their camera on. So people might not want others to see where they live or how they live, or, you know, uh, it's an intrusion. And with community college students, there is a tremendous percentage of community college students who are home insecure or maybe experiencing homelessness. And they might not want people to know that they're living on someone's couch or or maybe they're even tuned in from their car on their phones. 
So um, I don't really necessarily want to force a student into an uncomfortable situation that's an intrusion into their private life. That's a lot of the same reasoning um, in the K-12 environment, too, So, except the homeless part. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, there was a, um, I, can't, I wish I could remember her name, but I saw a speaker a few years ago at a conference in D.C., and she's from Temple University, and she had, had startling statistics on college students, homelessness, food insecurity, that the, the numbers are staggering. I wish I could remember her name. But anyway, um, it, was, it, was really, uh, it was really staggering to see what our students are dealing with outside of trying to take a class that's human anatomy and physiology. And for most of my students, this is the hardest class they've taken so far. Well, the dynamic actually makes a fair amount of sense. I mean, I used to do um, a fair amount of work with a shelter in Dubuque. We talked about Dubuque earlier. The Grothel alums are alum that I am present that you are. Yes. And community colleges often serve as a, a place for adults who, for whatever reason, um, have found themselves struggling to get themselves back on track and to get an education so that they can get a leg up and get started in the in the workplace. So that that dynamic actually makes a fair amount of sense to me. Yeah, for sure. And I'll tell you what, um, outside of that, even for my my students, a lot of people will think, well, you're online students, nothing's really changed. But that's not necessarily true either. So with with something like A and P, human A and P. This is a requirement for nursing school, for physical therapists, occupational therapists, maybe dental hygiene, and and they have board exams and entrance exams. So they require um, our courses to have proctored examinations. And we used to have them come into our proctoring centers. We have three campuses in the county, and they would be able to go to any of them during a specific date range, and that's where they took their exams, and they're not open right now. So using digital proctoring software, and then we have to also worry, does someone want this software program company to have access to their computer or their webcam or things like that? So there's a lot of concerns with that, but then also because of the population of student I have, a lot of people who are working toward a clinical degree, they're already working in hospitals or in critical care centers or in nursing homes, and this has been a nightmare for them. They can't get off work. They're constantly at risk. I had one student living in his car, not because he was experiencing homelessness, but because he worked in a hospital during the day, and his father was at high risk for COVID, so he didn't want to go in the house. And he was also a military veteran. So we had a military veteran living in his car, also working in a hospital during COVID, so my students are going to work still because they're frontline workers and they're getting COVID. I've had several students have COVID over the course of the last year. It's been a challenge and I've been trying to be really, really understanding and respectful and uh, lenient. You know, my due dates have, have gotten way softer than they ever were. <laughs> You know, because it ultimately it doesn't really matter if they do it Wednesday or they do it Friday. Who cares? Right. And then, so like, if a student had COVID, how are you dealing with that? Because colleges have you know the deadlines and the grades are due. So, I mean, are you dealing with a lot of incompletes and extensions? Yeah, yeah. So, incompletes are are pretty common where um, they're not going to finish. They're not going to get to the final exam by the last day. So. 
I'll give them an incomplete. They'll, I'll give them a couple more weeks or whatever they need to finish it. And then I'll just change their grade. You know, that's pretty easy to do. So would you say in this environment that I know you said you already were teaching online, you had online students, but the ones that are the traditional that now are doing online, would you say that they're doing better about the same? Is it more of a struggle for them? Uh, I would say they're doing, um, um, from when I look at, like if I'm just pulling the data and looking at the data and seeing what they say in terms of my grades, um, things like that, they're probably doing about the same right now as they did a year ago. Um, however, there are some individuals who probably are dealing with more challenges than they would have otherwise. And and again, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty respectful of that. There's also it's been a year now that people have been locked down, and I'm I'm usually dealing with people between on average between 20 and 30 years old, and um, they're really struggling with their mental health in terms of not seeing their friends, not seeing their grandparents, not you know you know things like that. So I'm also trying to be a little bit you know, aware of, of that struggle as well, so that I'm not going to be another source of stress for them because I'm not going to budge on some silly date. There's a phrase that's being bandied about in the K-12 world and with some amount of controversy. Um, but due to this need, I mean, this humanitarian need to provide the understanding and the compassion that you're providing, um, Are you you dealing with like a learning loss? Like, is there content that you feel you really should be teaching that you can't teach because you're having to manage these, what I would call higher order needs? Um, Or are you finding creative ways to still accomplish what you need to accomplish in your course? I probably wouldn't say that I'm, I'm losing content because I can't skip content in my class because they've got board exams based on the material we cover. So I would say that what I will do is I'll record a session and make sure that the recordings are always available to them in case they have to miss a class or um, rather than just say, okay, well, you're not responsible for this. I would rather just give them more time. And if that means take an incomplete uh, and take a couple extra weeks after the semester, that's usually not a couple extra weeks. It's going to make or break them. They'll still make it to their next semester, their next course or, or, or what have you with that extra few weeks of, of time. But I do, um, I, I make a lot of digital resources for them that are available outside. I have my own website that I host myself outside of our learning management system that they always have access to. Over the years, I would say since, I've been teaching online anatomy and physiology since 2008, totally online labs and everything since 2008. I mean, and trust me, when you go to the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society conference, national conference in 2008, and you do a presentation on online labs, it is slings and arrows, <laughs> right? You are, you are th- th- facing the vitriol of people who don't understand. And then when you do the, the presentation in 2018 on your model for online A&P, the workshops are standing room only. Right. Now you're the hero of, of all that. Yeah, and, you, and they can't get enough. I've been teaching online since about, I think it was like 2006. And so like for me, it's exactly, it's, I've been doing this forever. This is nothing new, but it is interesting, the uh, change in attitude because now everyone's yeah. forced to do it. 
I, I, I wonder, um, since you've been doing it forever, obviously this switch for mo- for you was nothing. But have you noticed, like, have you talked to your colleagues? You know, what are they doing? Have you been supporting them? I would imagine that they're probably reaching out to you. Hey, Steve, we don't know what to do. Yeah. So I usually, I usually share my resources with my colleagues. So, um, and I've shared my resources with uh, not only my colleagues at Bucks, but my colleagues around the country. So I'm very active in the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society. We call it HAPS. I'm very active in that community. There's about 1,500 members teaching A&P around, around the world, actually, mostly in North America. And so what I did was I took a snippet of my website and, uh, and, I, sh- and I shared it with them so that everyone could kind of get a look at what I've been working on and what I've got, which is mostly digital photos from my labs. Uh, they are lab simulations, but mostly tutor videos. So I've been making videos. I probably have about 150 tutor videos on my website right now. Uh, everything from DNA structure and protein synthesis to identifying the bones of the skull. You know, so I have a lot of, a lot of stuff on there. And, uh, and so I've been sharing it with them in small bits because um, one of the projects I've been working on is a digital suite of resources for McGraw-Hill. So a lot of the videos I make uses McGraw-Hill's artwork. So they own that part of it. So they, they were really generous in saying a year ago, let's just, let's just let people use it for now, for free, and let's get people through this because people panicked. I've been telling people around my school district and around my school and, and everywhere to please be patient with these teachers because when I taught anatomy and physiology online for the first time, I didn't think of doing it myself. My dean wanted it. Our provost wanted to start offering more online courses that you can't find anywhere else. And I was kind of already known as the digital the digital person at my school. Like I was the one doing fancy things with, with Blackboard and, and things like that. And, um, and so my dean said, we want you to put this class online. And I said, okay, give me a year to build it. And they're like, no problem. And meanwhile, last year, these teachers had a weekend. Right. <laughs> you know, so I, I think that parents and students, they needed to be understanding of that. And they, they weren't all very understanding about that. So, I mean, it seems like you were already doing this and then... Did McGraw-Hill approach you or did you approach McGraw-Hill or did someone say, hey, Steve, you should publish this stuff? I'm curious what the trajectory was. Well, what happened was this. Here's the story. I'm sitting in my office in 2008, late 2008, and I'm putting materials together on my website for my online, my new online course. And I was already using a McGraw-Hill textbook. So a lot of it had content from that book that I was making into assignable homeworks and things like that that students could do to mimic what we do in a lab. The sales rep from McGraw-Hill walked in at that time just to say, how's it going? Do you need anything? And saw what I was doing and asked about it. And she said, "Um, you should talk to our editor for anatomy and physiology. I think he'd really be interested in what you're doing because we want to start making more digital things that come with the textbook rather than have instructors have to make it themselves, because not everyone knows how to do that. So I went to Dubuque, Iowa, um, 
on a, a little uh, symposium trip and got to meet those people in, in February of 2009. And from like that weekend, they asked if I wanted to come on as a consultant for their A&P digital products. And um, that's how it started. So I've been with them ever since. It's been now 12 years that I've been consulting with and authoring content for McGraw-Hill. So the product we just launched in September of 2020, we started discussions on in 2015. It took five years to get it to where it is today. And is it finished or? No. Because you said. <laughs> so. No. So okay. what, All right. <laughs> yeah. So what we're, so here's the story, right? So what we're working on is called, right now it's called anatomy and physiology lab suite, but really it's, it's more than lab. It's, it's also lecture, con- what we call lecture content. So what it is, is it is a non- text-specific digital courseware for anatomy and physiology. So basically, students shouldn't need a textbook with it. They can use a textbook if they want, but it will align with any anatomy and physiology textbook that's common. So, so basically, it's, um, it's the key concepts in anatomy and physiology that I make tutor videos to teach the content, five-minute videos on cell division or five-minute videos on how muscles contract, how nerve signals are generated, things like that. And then there's some some, uh, narrative text that goes along with it that's all digital. Then there'll be homework assignments. There's adaptive learning tools that go with it. There's lab simulations that are cadaver dissections and physiology lab things like ECGs or lung measurements, things like that. So um, basically, everything you need to do in an A and P course, you can you can deliver digitally, so that students don't feel like they have to teach themselves when they're taking an online course. There's actually an instructor who's doing that, and a lot of it stems from I started making my own tutor videos because the the animations that came with a typical anatomy and physiology textbook were just not very good. They were written by a marketing team performed by an actor who doesn't really know what he or she is talking about. And then the animations were not very pedagogically sound uh, in terms of bulleting the highlighted, the, the key concepts and making sure that they're hearing what they're seeing. They also weren't very ADA compliant. So I worked that in as well. So anyway, so what I love about it is it's evergreen. You don't have to, students don't have to wait for the next edition to come out. There's no new editions. There's no printing. So that it's really low cost. And we just updated as we go. So the reason why we launched it when it was only about halfway finished was because of COVID, because the instructors needed something and McGraw-Hill decided that we're going to launch it with what we've got now and let people know there's more coming. It's going to update automatically as the new content is, is ready, but you could start now and deliver this content to your students in your remote environment and that was September 2020, and we're up at around 21,000 users already. So it really uh, seemed to have um, filled a need, which which I'm glad about. So when you say users, are you like, so who is this being sold to? Is it being sold to students as like an actual course, or is it being sold to professors that then use it in their course? Right. So the students are the ones paying for it just like a textbook. So, so when you think about the model of textbook, it's, it's a really interesting model because the customers, quote unquote, customers that we market to are not the people paying. The professors decide what materials they're going to use, then the students buy those materials. 
So when we say users, we're talking total number of students who are using it right now. So I want to ask you a bit about just the, you said it's low cost, the way we're doing this, or you're doing this now. And I know, I mean, that gets a lot of press when they talk about uh, in terms of the increasing costs of secondary education and textbooks are part of that. And so states like California are trying to move to these free textbook models, et cetera, et cetera, and open source is becoming a thing. Um, and you also mentioned earlier uh, at McGraw-Hill, and just a brief shout out to McGraw-Hill, like not to toot the big company, but I mean, even on the K-12 side, I was at McGraw-Hill when COVID started, and I have to give them a little credit for their number one priority when that thing started was, hurry, how do we bail these teachers out who are in panic mode? And uh, I sat in meetings and at, now, at, at no point did we talk about how can we make money off this? So a little brief shout out. But my question, like you said, because they they own the art and that's the single most expensive part of publishing textbooks, especially for science books for folks who weren't aware of that. So I'm curious, I mean, so you would spend an A&P textbook and tell me if I'm getting my numbers wrong, but it wouldn't be uncommon to spend upwards of $200 for a, a new A&P traditional textbook. Uh, probably 250 that's the bookstore price. So if the students are buying it through the bookstore, they might be paying two, maybe let's say $240 or so for the three-hole punch version of the book. That's not even the hardcover. So I just want to give folks a magnitude. So all the advantages of having this digital wrap that you've been sharing with us, that they have access to, they can do all these labs digitally, they can really access the experience digitally. Um, and you said it's low cost. So a perspective, are we talking half, a quarter? I'm just curious. So my course, Anatomy and Physiology, is a two, it was what we call a two-semester course, right? So you take A&P 1, you take A&P 2. So the project that I, we have out now, Anatomy and Physiology Lab Suite, costs $80, and they have access for two years. So $80 gets them through both of their A&P courses. And what if they want to have it forever? Can they do that? Uh, they could probably just re-up after the two years is up is over. That I'm not really sure. Since we just kind of started yet, we haven't really hit that mark of that, of whether or not students want to have it forever afterward. They've they've pretty much found that that keeping an, a textbook on your shelf for the rest of your life is not really the model anymore. Really, I still have mine. I know, I do too. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> okay, because with the three of us, are I've never met you, Steve, but if you hang out with Greenhouse, I'm assuming the three of us are in a certain demographic, and that would not be the most of Steve's students. Right. Exactly. So, so I took I'll tell you like my general biology course. Bio 101 at Rutgers University was 1990. I still have that book, but it's wrong now. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, I guess you know, like, like with math, it doesn't change as much. But yeah, I would imagine with biology, it does. With, with, with biology, the lineages are, are different now and the, the taxonomy is different and the pictures were all black and white. So, I mean, I don't know if you know much about gram staining and microbiology, but black and white pictures don't do you a whole lot of good <laughs> um, because the, the the colors matter. <laughs> so True enough. Um, so maybe it's time to get rid of the book, Steve. I know, but it's, but it's kind of like, um, I will say this, it's a Pearson book, but I still really love it. It's the gold standard for general biology, which is Neil Campbell. I'm not, I'll just shout out to, he's, he's no longer with us, but the Campbell book is, is pretty much the standard across the board for, for general biology. And, and it still is, but it is kind of fun to still have it on my, on my shelf. Are you getting any pushback from students? Like, are there students who miss 
the paper textbook who want to be able to highlight in their book and put the stickies like those of us of another era used to, does that dynamic still exist? Or are students really comfortable with this idea of a digital curriculum? I would say my students go about half and half because what McGraw-Hill does with their model right now is the students have the option. So they could go all digital if they want and they could do all their stuff. And what's nice is they've got this program, they've got this app called um, McGraw-Hill Read Anywhere. And so they can have their tablet and they can download the e the e-version of the book to their tablet where it's it's downloaded. They don't have to be online to see it. So they can have the book anywhere they go if they want. Like a lot of my students, they study at work. So they can they can carry it along. But the students who want the paper can buy the paper version. And right now, I think what McGraw-Hill is offering is that if they want to upgrade to the paper version, so they'll, they'll, they'll register for my course. It's all digital. They get their self logged in and all of their homework assignments, all of their lab simulations, all of their quizzes, all of their exams are all in that program. For McGraw-Hill, it's called Connect. For Pearson, it's called, they call it Mastering. For Wiley, they call it Wiley Plus. For Cengage has one, I think called MindTap. They've all got one, right? It's basically the, the publisher's version of a learning management system like Blackboard or Canvas. And they all sync seamlessly with those LMSs so that instructors can keep their grade books the way they want. And, and it's, it's all, they're all pretty good. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, just because I write for McGraw-Hill that, that they're doing something no one else is doing. They're all pretty much on the same page with what they're doing. Some platforms are better than others, but it's just the way it is. So what McGraw-Hill does is they can they register for that digital course, and then there's a little click, and it says if you'd like the three ring, the, you know, the three ring binder version of the, of the text that that your professor is teaching from, um, click here, and we'll send it to you for thirty nine dollars. So for $80 plus $39, they get exactly what the bookstore is selling them for $245. And that's two semesters. That's a deal. I will say there's a couple of things that I think people aren't aware of is that the prices of materials have actually been going down over the last few years. So um, people are saying the cost of these textbooks are rising and rising. That's if you're still using an old school hardcover textbook. But if you're willing to move into a digital age, the prices of materials are way lower than they were a few years ago, and the students are getting more. So when I was a student, getting the materials for a lab science course was just a textbook and a lab book, and it cost more than $80 then, talking 30 years ago. And now they're getting that, plus they're getting a virtual cadaver dissection simulation. They're getting virtual physiology simulations. They're getting their homework assignments and they're getting practice quizzes and they're getting, you know, all these cool things that did not exist in 1990 and 1991. So, I mean, I, I would say that I think people are missing what the actual data are showing us. And that is that the costs are actually going down and what they're getting is going up. Which makes perfect sense. There's actually a couple of reasons. A, the whole OER movement, I think, is having an effect as publishers are having to figure out how to be competitive. Um, and secondly, like you talked about the print books, I mean, one of the things that traditionally used to be the case, especially for higher ed courses, was, well, there, we don't print enough. And it's really, it costs a bunch to print uh, higher ed books for, especially for courses that not a lot of students take. Well, the reality is printing technology is also advanced too. And you can print 
high quality textbooks for a fraction of what it would cost even 10 years ago. You can print on demand. You don't have to print 100,000 copies and put it in a warehouse like they used to do. Exactly. And the and digital printing has gotten to a point where the the color and the quality is uh, near competitive with the traditional printing. So, I mean, so there's been lots of dynamics in play that have helped drive down those costs. Um, so they're not nearly as horrible as they were. I'm curious, the other dynamic, so I, I, I'm, I'm married. My wife just recently finished nursing school. So I got to go through this with her as an adult. She rented a bunch of her textbooks. Is that a dynamic you deal with? Uh, well, students can rent the book I use. Uh, my only concern is that they'll still need access to the software which is what we call connect. So if the rental comes with an access code, then great. But if they don't have the access code, then they can't do my assignments and take my homeworks and do my exams. So they only get the access if they're basically going through McGraw-Hill, right? Yeah. So what I do, they can go right into my Canvas space. Canvas is our learning management system. It's like Blackboard or, um, you know, I don't even know what the other one, D2L. Moodle. Yeah, Moodle, right, those things. But uh, so they, they go right into my Canvas space, they click on a link, and, and when, if they register from there, they get the best price that's available, and then they, uh, they're automatically synced with our Canvas space. So that's how I recommend they do it. Unfortunately, the students who are at the highest need have to use vouchers, their financial aid vouchers, and they're only valid at our bookstore. So they have to pay the markup that our bookstore puts on our materials. So they make the poorest students pay the most for the materials. So that's something that I'm hoping that we can get away from soon as well. And with this, with this new digital uh, system that we have now, I'm really hoping that um, we don't have to worry about that so much anymore. Uh, having something that doesn't cost them $240, you know, maybe 80 if they're willing to go digital or 120 if they want the paper for two semesters. I think that's pretty reasonable. And I think what we, what we lose out on with the, with the open source stuff is I know that when I finish a chapter, it's not going to be live for three months. And the reason why it's not going to be live for three months is because it has to go through accuracy checking and proofreading and double accuracy checking. It's got to be vetted. And because, you know, these companies, they, they spend a little extra resources to make sure what we're doing is right. I've used some OER stuff. There's a really, really popular, people have said, why are you making your own tutor videos? You know, there's a, an unnamed, really popular tutoring system on YouTube already that's been around for 20 years. Why don't you just use that and just link to those videos? And the reason is because I've watched them. And the person who makes those is a math person, not a bio person. And he may yeah, not necessarily exactly. know the difference. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I feel like I know what the name unnamed. Ooh, can we can we say the names just so that we can all groan? Let me let me tell you what I was I was at a dinner I was at a dinner in New York City where this person was given an an education award from McGraw Hill. So I'm not I don't want to necessarily name. So one of us has to be loyal to McGraw Hill. Still, the other two. <laughs> <laughs> we left McGraw Hill. Well, I, I will say that um, I, we had the same experience that you had, Tim, when the when the pandemic started. And my editors and I, we got together on Zoom and we said, let's let's take the materials that we've already got ready to go for this project, and I'll stick them. I'll make a quick little Weebly site and I'll share it with our you know A and P Society and let people use whatever they need to get them through this year. 
and they were all for it. No problem. You know, like nobody wanted to be the, uh, the monster who was going to try to profit off the pandemic. Yeah, I really, I don't, I mean, it's probably not of interest to enough people to do it on the podcast, but it really was an intriguing process sitting in meetings with the president of the division and legal and everyone just trying to figure out like, all right, how do we make this work? And it wasn't just a money thing. I mean, it was a whole intellectual property thing. Like, do we have the right to give this away and because of an author? Right? Anyway, it was just amazing how quickly and how hard the group of people, and I'm sure this wasn't just McGraw-Hill. I know lots of other companies, education groups bent over backwards to try to support people. But uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't as easy as people might think in terms of, yeah, just give it away. Like there was a, there was a, it was a much more complex process. Yeah. And there is something to say that like, you know, the pandemic is, is going to end and we are going to get back to a, a degree of, of normalcy. I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll look exactly like we did 18 months ago, but I, I think people want us to be pretty close to what that was. But I think that ultimately the benefit will be, I think we're going to see a lot more digitally enhanced courses than we saw before because now instructors are comfortable with the technology that's available. They're familiar with it. Now they're aware that it exists. We have a, uh, McGraw-Hill has a digital, a digital cadaver dissection simulation that's been out since 2003. And it was on disks then. Now it's totally online. But um, it's been out for almost 20 years. And I still come across people who teach anatomy and physiology who've never heard of it. And I'm shocked that they're not aware that this exists at all. So now what we have is we have instructors, K-12 teachers, who are aware of the things that exist. I've been teaching K-12 teachers how to use digital technology in their classrooms for a couple of years for the College of New Jersey's um, off-site global programs for their, their uh, school of education. So we teach this class called Advanced Trends in Education, and I teach the digital technology portion of it in Bangkok. And it's great to get these, you know, maybe like a second grade teacher and I've got them building websites that they can link to from their Canvas space and they've and on their website they've got little videos that they've made showing them about the parts of a flower or the five senses, which as an A&P person, that phrase drives me crazy because there's more than five senses. But, you know, you know, teaching about like, you know, these things and they've got these little cutesy things that they can, that, that because guess what? Their second and third graders are going on YouTube anyway. And they're looking for this stuff. I started making tutor videos because my students would show up and say, oh, look at this video I found. This is relevant to our class. And I, and I would say it is relevant, but there's too much stuff in here that's not going to help you. And so I was like, well, maybe I can make them instead. And so, um, so they're scouring it. I have, I have a couple of videos on YouTube that have, I haven't checked in a while, but you know, three quarters of a million views. And a lot of the comments are, can you please translate this to German or can you please translate this to Flemish or something like that? And I'm like, I'm sorry, no, I can't. But, uh, but what's happening, it's not because my videos are so amazing. It's because the students are desperately trying to find ways to learn this stuff better for them. Do you think, I mean, talking about you know, that teachers are going to embrace digital tools more fully now because they've had to during the pandemic and are seeing the advantages, extrapolate that out. Does the, I know you teach at a community college, but 
is the uh, six, 618 year olds hurting into an auditorium to hear a lecture about uh, biology 101? Is that going to go the way of the dodo bird? I hope so, because I was one of those people, and I, uh, I have vivid memories of sitting in a room of 400 people and watching a person up front sit on a stage with a handheld microphone and talk and try to explain to us cell division or DNA replication just by sitting there with a handheld microphone and talking in front of the class. That was not effective. So, and then the only way for us to try to fi- figure out at home was to go and, and read the chapter 15 times, you know, and look at the black and white pictures, <laughs> you know? And so with my discipline, physiology is a dynamic process. It's not something that I can explain with a still photograph. So I prefer the videos that I can animate. And I can show them how nucleotides of DNA replicate. And I can show how it moves and how the enzyme attaches and how the enzyme slides over here. And, but it's, it's kind of hard. So a lot of times I'll get my students coming to me after an exam that they bomb. And they say, well, I read the chapter 13 times. I don't know what else to do. And I said, I said well, what, do you, what did you think the 13th time was going to do for you that the 12th didn't? It's not really an effective way to do it. And so I'm all for the people who write these textbooks. They, they do a really, really great job. But I think the textbooks are great resources and great sources of the material. They're not necessarily teaching, right? The, the page in the book is not the teacher. So telling a student to read the chapter and then take an exam is not teaching. And filling them, put 600 students into a into a lecture hall and trying to, and explaining something, but then you can't take questions. So when you've got 600 students, are you really opening it up to questions and discussions? How do you have a discussion with 600 people? So I'm hoping that that, if that model doesn't change, I'm hoping that at least that instructor up front, I'm really hoping that she's got digital resources that the students can go home and review what she was trying to explain in the class earlier that day. Because otherwise, it's maybe they record it with a digital recorder and then listen to the same thing later. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel the same way about math. Like, I don't know how people can be teaching without, like, showing the students what this graph does and what, the, you know, I, same thing. All right, I have a question. I'm looking at our time, and I have to ask it before we, we end. So you talked a lot about labs, the virtual labs and doing anatomy. So here's my, 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 my only thing that I can think of when I think of anatomy is the movie Gross Anatomy with Matthew Modine, which I love. But, you know, anatomy class was a big deal and there was cadavers. So do you get pushback from people who are like, no, you must use a real body. You're not going to get the same information. Yeah. Sometimes we do get some pushback on the fact that there's no actual specimen. But here's the difference. I'm not teaching gross anatomy to medical students. I'm teaching uh, 100-level anatomy and physiology. So most of the people who teach the class I teach do not have cadavers. So, so in, my, in my face-to-face lab, when we are in a regular traditional classroom, we're dissecting fetal pigs, sheep brains, sheep hearts, bovine kidneys, uh, things like that. So we are doing those dissections. Um, here's the thing with anatomy and physiology at the level that I'm teaching it. 
the lab is not about lab technique. It's about it. The lab is there to help achieve learning objectives about being able to identify anatomical structures. So if I can achieve those, if I can achieve those learning objectives with digital tools, that's fine. Doesn't mean it's right for all students. I often get the question, well, what's better, online, hybrid, or face-to-face? And uh, my answer is uh, none. None of them are better overall. It's how that student learns. So the student really has to have a level of self-awareness to choose the mode that works best for her. And, and I think that um, I, I, I will never say that one is better than the other. Um, I get that question from students. I get that question from other instructors. Now, if I was teaching microbiology, I think that although because of the pandemic, they've had to teach microbiology totally online, you need to be in a lab because microbiology, the learning objectives are about lab technique or biotechnology. Technique is in the learning objective. So it's really difficult to do that with a simulation. Now, what's nice is that I've got access to this digital cadaver so that my students do have exposure to what the human body looks like, because without it, all they'd have is these animal specimens. Oh, so you're actually able to do maybe more because of the... Exactly. So my face-to-face students who are dissecting sheep hearts and sheep brains, they're still doing the cadaver dissection simulation. So I'm actually able to do more. I've actually, I've had, I've had instructors say to me, well, we like this digital dissection software, but do you have one that's a fetal pig? And I'm like, why? You're using a pig because you don't have cadavers. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So use the digital. Right. I tell them, I'm usually I'm at the HAPS conference and I say, this is HAPS, not PAPS. (laughs) It's human anatomy and physiology. Now you... Now you have access. You can give your students access to human what the human body looks like versus that. So, so yeah, sometimes there is some feedback. And, and trust me, I've, I've been in the cadaver lab. My schooling, we had, we had four straight semesters of cadaver dissection, uh, full semesters. Uh, we broke it up into uh, axial, which is head and spine, then extremities, arms and legs. Then we had internal for visceral organs, and then we had neuro as all as separate courses, full semesters long. I wouldn't trade that for the world, for my ability to teach the 100 level course I'm teaching now. But they say, teach the tip, but know the iceberg. And so as an instructor, I wouldn't trade my experience with those cadavers. But my particular students, they don't necessarily need that level. And the virtual is? The virtual covers it. The thought in my head right now is I just wonder if I would faint at a virtual cadaver as much as I know I would totally lose it if I was in front of a cut-up human cadaver. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a little curious. Are the, I, I mean, I have some, at least at the K-12, I mean, I've been, you said those the uh, virtual dissection was around since 2003. Well, back then I was a principal on the Navajo reservation where it was a cultural thing. We couldn't cut open um, wow. a, a live living, or not live living creatures, but living creatures who had passed away. Right. And so we had to, I mean, we were sort of on top of figuring out other ver- other ways to learn anatomy um, that weren't avoiding cultural topics. So that was, uh, anyway, so it was interesting hearing you share about the history of how the these digital tools have come around. Yeah. So the digital tools, I wonder how this would work. I'm curious because the digital cadaver dissection are photographs of actual cadavers. 
So they still did use human cadavers. It's from the University of Toledo Medical School. It's called, by the way, I should probably mention it. I've so, talked about it so much. It's called Anatomy and Physiology Revealed. And the University of Toledo Medical School takes all the photographs and they, they've patented the interactive nature of it. So Steve, I could talk to you all day, so we might have to have you come back because we didn't even get to you know your podcast, but any last words that you would like to share with anyone who is listening? Um, well, one, thanks so much for asking me to do this. That This was a lot of fun. It's, it's really, you know, I mean, it's great to just sit there and talk about stuff education-wise, but um, my thing would just be, uh, especially with, with the pandemic and the remote learning and all that stuff, is just be patient. Be patient with your teachers, be patient with your students, be patient with your parents. You know, every, a lot of people are flying, are still flying a little blind here. And, um, and it's, it's not as easy as it looks. So just exercise a little patience with everybody. And I think that we'll, we'll all get through it. Right. And if you're an educator, be patient with yourself. That's, that's, I know they're under so much pressure. Yeah. Don't be hard on yourself and don't be afraid to ask people for help. Like I said, I'm, I'm no genius. I've just been doing this for a long time. So I, a lot of people ask me for help. I spent a lot of time a year ago doing Zoom sessions with other instructors two, three times a week for the first couple of months. Um, don't be afraid to reach out. It's, I, I just happened to, by chance, have already had this figured out. But um, there's, And there's a lot of people like me out there. I'm not a unicorn. So instructors should be should be willing to ask for help. Great advice. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Steve. We've really enjoyed talking to you. And you can find this episode and all of our episodes wherever you listen to your podcast. But also make sure to visit our webpage, 180days.education, where you can find all of our previous episodes, our show notes. We will be sure to include any links that were mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And subscribe to our newsletter so that you can stay up to date about when all of our episodes are coming up. So thank you again. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Steve. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. There will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before. 